AV team, I'll probably need your help with the slides this morning. We want to uh, remember our mothers this morning, and thank you, Kevin, for praying uh, both for our biological mothers as well as our spiritual mothers, and uh, a happy Mother's Day to all of you um, and church family. Just want us to be mindful that we are able to thank the Lord for both. You have not only biological mothers, you also have spiritual mothers. And we think of the Apostle Paul, though he was single, he viewed Timothy as his son. He was a father, and a father to the church in Corinth, giving spiritual life and having that family. And I just want to make mention, single ladies... You do not have to wait for a fallen man to be a mother. Men do not make mothers. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ makes mothers. And if Jesus is your Lord, you already have the best man in heaven and earth. No better than that to lead you and to guide you and to enable you to be a spiritual mother in the household of God. You will need the help from certainly a Titus II woman who will teach you, older, godlier, and wiser, how to love difficult men, be they husbands or children. But nonetheless, it is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gives life and make mothers. Can I hear an amen for Jesus? Oh. You sound like an Asian church. <laughs> Can I hear an amen for Jesus? Amen. Oh, much better, much better. Well, this morning we're going to talk about work. And I didn't plan it that way for Mother's Day, but it is timely because many of the women in our lives and our mothers, spiritual as well as physical, have been the hardest working people in many of our lives. And... Uh, as we think about work, if I could have my first slide. If you're working, wherever you work, in the church or wherever else, sooner or later you come into hard times and you may ask yourself, what am I working for? And it's a good question to ask from time to time. What are we working for? And the answers that you hear when you talk to people is, I, I'm working to pay for the rent. I'm working for food. I'm working for my family, I'm working so that my children can have a better life than I had. That's a, a very classic immigrant story. I'm working for my children's education. I'm working for my career. And as you think about the many things that are shared, even as celebrities are interviewed about their careers, and they talk about sometimes that they're so blessed or they're so lucky to be able to do what they love for a living, And as we think about all those answers, when we think about work, more often than not, in the church and out of the church, we're thinking about ourselves. What this does for me, this is my work. We tend to separate God over here in my Christian life and work over here and family over here. We all tend to do that. That's how we're raised. It's the way of the flesh. We compartmentalize our brains like a hard drive with work on one side and the other stuff on the other. And the rules that apply to church don't necessarily apply to work. 
And that comes out many times when many of you go and you look for a job or you find a job and the pastors and the elders are the last to find out. And, and, and we do that. And that's not a grievance. I'm just saying that's the pattern. That's how we work. Because the assumption is the Word of God and Christ has nothing to say about what I do. And the local family, the household of God, has nothing to say about what I do. And when we look at that, we really see, look, our work more often than not, if we're frank with ourselves, including ministry in the pulpit, our work tends to be about us, ourselves. And if we're honest, work is not only our world, it is also our worship. Work is not only our world, it is also our worship. And it shows who or what we worship. There was an article I posted last night on the Facebook site uh, that was in the Atlantic in 2019. And it's worth reading. The solutions, as usual, fall short. But the observations, many of them are spot on. In an article entitled, Workism is Making America Miserable, the author states, quote, for the college-educated elite, that's you all, for the college-educated elite, work has morphed into a religious identity, promising transcendence and community, but failing to deliver. We could say the same about family or education as well. He goes on to say that there is a gospel of work. In fact, that's his first point. The gospel of work, the good news of work, is, quote-unquote, he points out, the decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty. Some people worship political identities. Some people worship wellness. Others worship their children. But everybody worships something. Everybody worships something. Now, this is the Atlantic. This is not Mark Chin. And he says, And workism is among the most potent of new religions. The belief, this is workism, that work is the centerpiece of one's identity, and it is the centerpiece of life's purpose. How true is that of you, and how true is that of me? But then he goes on to say, Our desks were never meant to be our altars. Our desks were never meant to be our altars. And the fruit of this gospel frequently is bitterness, anxiety, and spiritual and physical exhaustion. I don't think this guy's a believer. Maybe he is. He certainly grew up or was exposed to it. Okay? Brothers and sisters, we bring that into the church on a regular basis. And it shows in our service and our worship. And as we come to God's word, God shows us that this is nothing new. This is what God calls idolatry. Idolatry. Okay, And the easy way to find our idols, brothers and sisters, is to consider our areas of discontent and anxiety. You look at your life, you say, where's the area of my frustration, irritability, anxiety, stress, what we call stress, okay? 
and discontent. And these typically are the areas, brothers and sisters, where our idols lie. Beginning in Genesis, the Lord God makes it clear to his people, unless we repent and turn to him as the centerpiece of our identity and our lives, rather than our work or the things we do, unless we turn to him, Unless the Lord steps in and saves us from ourselves and our idolatries. Whether it be family, work, or education, or career. Unless He steps in, unless He saves us, unless we repent and turn to Him. He will personally bring the judgment and curse of His word against us. And against anything we worship as a substitute for Him. This, brothers and sisters, is justice according to the Word of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis 3.17, and we'll read Genesis 3.17 through 19, the Lord God's justice and judgment that He brings against the first man's sin and idolatry. Genesis 3.17, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord. In God's timing, this is the text that we're given for today, and... I think there's some irony that on Mother's Day we're going to talk about the curse of the first man and God's curse and justice that he brings to men. So, ladies, here's your justice. But in this text, here the Lord God shows us his justice and his judgment against the first man's sin and his idolatry, very specifically his sin of covetousness. And that sin and idolatry is revealed in the first man's life. Verse 17, the Lord always draws those connections for us. He always specifically names our sin and what we do. Verse 17, it's this sin and idolatry is revealed by the first man listening to the voice of his wife. And in Hebrew, the idea of listening to a voice is an idiom. It's a saying, to listen to a voice in the Old Testament or Hebrew is to obey another God or to obey a Lord. If you listen to the voice of the Lord, you're obeying Him, okay? It shows that this idea of listening in one ear out the other, that is not the idea, okay? He's holding the first man accountable for listening to the voice of his wife and eating of the tree which the Lord God had personally commanded him with his word, you shall not eat of it. Okay, brothers and sisters, this is worship and idolatry 101. 
even for our little ones here today. Worship and idolatry 101. What and who we listen to, what and who we obey, is what we worship. What and who we listen to and obey is what and who we worship. And in the Old Testament, worship, the idea of worship, also had the connotation of who we work for and who we serve. That is very much part of worship. It's not just singing songs. It's the entirety of our lives belong to that. I try to stress this and emphasize this with our boys. When Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay, so if we don't keep his commandments, what does that say? And when I try to instruct my boys, when you don't obey your father and mother, what does that say about your relationship with us? It says that you love something or someone, whether that be a book or a toy or a friend, more than your parents. That is from the word of the Lord, okay? I can tell pretty clearly, brothers and sisters, what my relationship is like with most of you. And you can tell what your relationship is like with me. What do we do with one another's words? What do we do with the counsel that you are given by your elders? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Brothers and sisters, who we listen to, what we obey shows what we worship. So we can sing the songs all we want. The proof is in the pudding in our lives with what we do, with our work. There's that connection that the Lord God is drawing for the first man through the curse. An idol, brothers and sisters, is what we choose and what we chase to fulfill us, to meet our needs, to sustain us apart from God's word. An idol is what we choose to fulfill us apart from God and apart from His Word. Okay? It, it is not rocket science. Okay? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And for Adam, he chose fulfillment through the forbidden fruit. And the point is, at the point we are willing to disobey God's word, at the point we are willing to disobey God's word, what is being revealed is that there is something more important in our lives than God. That's the breaking point. At the point we're going to cross the line, and disobey God's word, not do what he asks of us. Men, at the point we go and pursue those illustrious jobs, as Carrie Hardy pointed out, regardless of whether there is a church to sustain our family, we are saying that our paycheck is more important than the word of the Lord in holding our family together and sustaining and growing our family. We show who our true master is. 
We show, brothers and sisters, at the point we are willing to disobey God's word or stray or go in a different direction from God's word, who or what rules us. And brothers and sisters, it's easy to see. It's not hard. And for the first man, that something is the devil's lie. That something that he strays from, that's something he's willing to disobey God's word for is the devil's lie that he can become equal with God, that he can have a life independent and free of God's word. Brothers and sisters, that's all our sin. All our sin. Whether it's respectable sin of career education, whatever, or whether it's crack cocaine in the street, Whatever it is from one spectrum to the other, it's basically, where's the life that I can have where I'm free from God and I'm free from His Word and I can do whatever I want? And that's the American dream at the end of the day. You know, you get your startup, you get billions of dollars, you get your IPO, and then you can do whatever you want. You can even lobby Congress. And for the first man, this is accomplished by taking and eating that forbidden fruit. And all the first man is doing is he's just furthering his career. It's just a step in the direction to get him to where he needs to be, which is the reason we work. We've got to get to that next step. And in verse 17, the Lord God makes it clear. It is for this very reason that the Lord God curses the ground. AV team, can I have my next slide, please? This is our first point for the morning. The Lord God's justice shows us who He is and who we are according to His Word. The Lord God's justice shows us who He is and who we are according to His Word. And this shows us very much where work is supposed to fit in into our lives. The very clear testimony of Genesis 1 and 2 is that the Lord God is who? He's the creator and the giver and the sustainer of every good gift in this world. And every good gift we have, He has created it, He has given it, and He has sustained it by His Word. And that includes the life and love and lordship that's given to all men, and that's given the work we have to do. Yes, brothers and sisters, work originally was a good gift from God. And when we come to the New Testament, James, which is very much a Proverbs or wisdom epistle, James James 1.17 makes this point. He's just summarizing this where he says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is the giver of every good gift. There is no good gift that God does not give. If God doesn't give it, it ain't good. And in Genesis 1 and 2, one of the very special gifts God sovereignly creates and blesses by His Word is the earth. It's the ground. It's the land. And in Genesis 1, it is the blessing and work of God's Word. It's God's Word that enables the ground to give life and give food. And in Genesis 2, it is from the ground that God has created and that He is blessed by His Word that God forms who? You don't have to be Asian. The first man, right? Have a look at Genesis 2, 7. We'll be in Genesis 2 for a minute. 
It says, Genesis 2-7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And as you go through the rest of Genesis 2, you see it is from this ground that God's word has blessed, that God blesses and provides the first man with a home, with life, with a livelihood and work and career. He gives him a world. And he gives him the gift of worship. And it's all very good according to God's word, not our word. And all of these gifts are holy. Holy means they are set apart and devoted entirely for the glory of God. And yes, because it's for the glory of God and because God is a good and generous and gracious God for our good as well. But good according to His Word. Yes, brothers and sisters, work from the beginning was given to us to be holy, to be set apart entirely for the goodness of God according to His Word and not ours. Have a look at verse 8. And the Lord God... 2.8, planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now drop down to Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to what? What does it say? To work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. Now, as you go through the five books of Moses and you go through the Old Testament, you will see that those two words in Hebrew, to work and to keep, become primarily the language of worship that describes the activities of the priests who work in the temple. To work and to keep, to work and to keep. From the beginning, brothers and sisters, work is a good gift from God. And it's given for grace to give, not for greed. And it's given for worship to honor the Lord, not for wealth. In Genesis 1 and 2, the first man and woman have everything they need and they have it in abundance. They don't need to work for a living. They don't need to work to feed their families. They don't need to work for a college education or a 401k plan. They have everything they need. Work, brothers and sisters, is given as a privilege. It's given as a privilege to the first man and woman, not the animals. It's given to the first man and woman. Why? Because God has created them in His likeness and image. God is a creator God who works. And the work He does is the work of His Word. And He's been working from the beginning of the world. 
And the gift of work is a privilege given to the first man so that he can be like God. And when we look at the work of God's word, what does the work of God's word do? It gives, it does not take. It gives life, it gives love, it gives a lordship that provides and protects and cares for those who come under that lordship. Work was meant to reflect the goodness of God, of what a generous and loving and holy and gracious and pure God we have by enabling us to give to others. And so that's why in the Old Testament, with the children of Israel living in which land? The promised land, okay. Flowing with milk and honey, blessed, okay. The first of their crops and the first of their produce were to be given to the Lord. Act of worship. Why? Because God had given it to them. God doesn't need it. It's a tribute, it's a demonstration, and it was used to help feed the priests, and it was used for religious celebrations, and it was used to honor the Lord. You worked in order to give, brothers and sisters, not to take. It's the complete opposite of our world. Work, and the work of God's Word, is the privilege of being like our Creator God. Brothers and sisters, do we use God's gifts and do we use the environment for our wealth or His worship? Do we work to give or do we work to get? And not infrequently, those same attitudes, brothers and sisters, get brought into the church. The testimony of Genesis 1 and 2, what makes the earth What makes the ground special and good? What makes it special and good and holy is the presence and work of God's Word. What makes you and I special and good? Is it our talents, our gifts, our abilities, our IQ? What is it that makes our home and our family special and good? What is it that makes our work special and good? In Genesis 1 and 2, it is not our talents, our education, our decisions or choices. It is the presence and work of God's Word. That's what makes all these things special and good. Brothers and sisters, if you ever have the blessing of meeting someone with special needs who is saved, you discover that by the world's standards... They are of little value. But in God's eyes and in the life of the local church, they have much to give. They are special and good because of the work of God's Word in their life in the presence of Christ. How much of our discontent in our lives is based on what we do not have. I'm not good-looking, I'm not beautiful, I'm not smart enough, I'm not this, I'm not that. And yet as we come to Genesis 1 and 2, and what the Lord sets us free from is what's good and special in your life is the presence and work of God. That's what makes you special. And God has given us a work 
the work of his word so that we can worship and serve and enjoy the one who loves us and created us to be like him according to his word. Brothers and sisters, we were created by God's word to be a gift. Now we understand that with little children. We understand that they are a gift, though in parts of this country they are a liability and a problem that gets aborted away. But nonetheless, we understand that. But brothers and sisters, do we consider before the Lord, you were created to be a gift. Very specifically, you were to be created to be the gift of His Word. How? By being like God and doing the work of His Word. A work that gives life and gives truth and gives grace to others in the same way God has given it to you. This is the life, brothers and sisters, that the first man denies and walks away from when he takes and eats of the tree that God has commanded him not to eat. He walks away from the truth that we all deny and that we all walk away from when we take God's gifts and His blessings and we use them contrary to His Word. When we take anything that God has given us as a blessing and gift and we use it in a way that it was not intended. Be it physical intimacy, be it gender, be it family, be it career, education, work. Whenever we take any of the gifts that God has given us and we use it in a way that God did not intend it to be used, when we use it contrary to God's Word, brothers and sisters, that is called abuse. When you use something, be it a relationship, or a person, in a way that God did not intend you to use that relationship or person or thing. That is, brothers and sisters, the very definition of idolatry and abuse. And brothers and sisters, we can bring that into the church. How often, if we're honest with ourselves, do we come to church for fellowship, for family, for friends, for relationships? Well, what's wrong with that, Pastor Mark? There's nothing wrong with that except if we are coming for those things and not for Jesus... Are we givers or are we takers? Are we using these things in a way that God intended? And brothers and sisters, when we use God's gifts in the ways He did not intend them to be used, we are defiling them with our sin, our idolatry, and our covetousness that blinds us to who God is and who He created us to be. And in Genesis 3.17, it begins with God. It says, and to Adam he said. And this is the first time the first man's personal name, Adam, is used. And that name, Adam, is derived from the Hebrew word for man, ha-adam. And the word for man is derived from the Hebrew word for earth or ground, ha-adamah. 
What's the point here? That personal name which the Lord uses or which Moses is using here for the very first time comes with the curse. Where the Lord God and Moses are reminding us all where Adam comes from. And when the Lord God curses the ground, he shows Adam and us who he truly is and who we are. He is our creator, our Lord, our God, and the giver of truth and grace and every good gift. And apart from the work of his word, brothers and sisters, we and our work are nothing but dirt. And that brings us to our second point this morning. Could I have my next slide, please? Thank you. The Lord God's justice brings suffering, futility, and death to everything we separate from His Word. The Lord God's justice brings suffering, futility, and death to everything we separate from His Word. Don't worry, this is the gospel, mothers. The bad news comes first, the good news comes later. So hang in there. During my time in Los Angeles, things may have changed, but if you went to restaurants, not infrequently, there would be a letter on the front of the restaurant, A, B, C, okay, and it was put up by whether it was a branch of the public health department or whoever from the government was overseeing the restaurants to let you know how close to the standards and the public health standards, whether they were being met or not. And you knew if you were getting down to a C or a D, you were taking your life into your hands. But when things really got bad, <clears throat> and I remember going to one very well-respected restaurant, you know, non-ethnic, very, very she-she, and seeing a sign to say that we're closed for the weekend, okay, and it wasn't because the chefs decided to take the weekend off. You realize that when things get bad, the public health department would come and close everything down. Why? It's not just that the chefs or the workers were negligent. It was the realization that someone's negligence had defiled the whole restaurant and it had become a place that would spread sickness or illness to many people. And for that reason, it needed to be cut off or shut down so that it would not spread or be a danger to others. In Scripture, the curse of God's Word is God's justice that condemns and cuts off what is not good. We don't have a problem with the public health department shutting down restaurants, but somehow we get upset when God steps in and shuts down what is not good. God's standard of good is very simple. It is not my opinion and it is not yours. It is His Word. And not good, according to God's Word, is anything that separates us from God and anything that separates us from His Word. It's very simple. That spreads the scope a little bit, brothers and sisters. You think in your life, what are the things that pull you away from the Lord? What are the things that pull you away from His Word? Does work pull you away from the Lord? Does your family pull you away from the Lord? Your biological family? Do your friends pull you away? Do the TV shows that you watch, the sports you participate, 
Okay, it's not like there's this list of this is evil, this is good. The question in your heart is, what is it that your heart is attached to? What is it that pulls you away? And men who are married, we all have to learn pretty fast. If there's something that pulls you away from the love of your wife, you better get rid of it soon. Because it's a seed that grows and thorns are coming. It's not rocket science, brothers and sisters. And if that's true for our wives and our children, how much more so for the Lord? The fact that we don't take these things seriously, and I say this of us all, shows how highly we esteem our relationship with God. Many times not very if we're willing to sacrifice the Lord for a TV show, a social media account, or the list goes on and on, okay? In verse 17, the Lord God condemns and cuts off the ground and the earth from the blessing and work of His Word. Why is that? It's cut off. When He says you're condemned or cursed or cut off, it means my blessing is not there, my presence is not there, I'm not going to be here any longer. Why? Have you ever had that shock to go to the grocery store or a pharmacy and buy food or medicine and come home with the bags? You know, you do that illness run, right? Someone in the family's sick. In fact, I, I just did it yesterday. Went out, thought I was being a hero because Julie was still recovering from her, her COVID vaccination shot. That kind of tells you where we are on the vaccination spectrum. Anyways, went out, got some groceries, got some different things, got home and discovered that the yogurt that I got from her was past the expiry date. You know, what do you do with it? What do you do when you go and you're doing those things and you get it home and you find out that the medication, the seal is broken? Or that someone has taken a sip or someone has opened the seal of the yogurt container and they put it back in. What do you do? Do you put it on the table and give it to your family? Hey, I'm no big deal, guys. No, you trash it right away. It's not worth it. It's been defiled and contaminated. Brothers and sisters, do we see our sin in the same way? Do we see the words and the thoughts of our heart in the same way? We tend to think of our sin as private and personal. We tend to think of our thoughts and desires as private and personal. It only affects me. I remember going to UCLA and going on campus and trying to do some evangelism outreach. And some young student felt all guilty as soon as I started talking, say anything, talked about sleeping with his girlfriend. And it came out out of nowhere. It's, and started to become really defensive. Well, what's that wrong? She, she wants it. She's agreeable to it. I'm not hurting it. It was like, dude, TMI. I'm just here to tell you about Jesus, okay? And you need to repent and come to him. But the ethos is, if it's not hurting anybody, or if it's not doing any damage, what's the big deal? But Brothers and sisters, when we come to God's word, he shows us through the curse. When he curses the ground because of Adam, what he's showing is that Adam's act of disobedience has defiled the whole world. It's defiled the earth because what has Adam done? Adam has gone and he's taken God's gift and he's used it and he's separated it from God's word. He's using it in a way that God had never intended the fruit of that tree and the fruit of the earth to be used. 
He's showing Adam, not only has your sin defiled your own heart, but it has defiled what you've abused. And of course, brothers and sisters, we see this very vividly in abusive relationships, where a man's anger or his sexual desire defiles and does damage, right, to those relationships and those who are the victims of abuse. We see that. Do we see that, brothers and sisters, in our thoughts and our desires? It's a lie, brothers and sisters, that your sin and idolatry is private and personal. Sin separates and sin spreads. And this is the lesson, of course, throughout the Old Testament that God makes to the children of Israel repeatedly. Someone goes out and they steal, guess what? The whole community suffers for it. And guess what? Whatever they steal is to be thrown away. Anything we use, brothers and sisters, be it our bodies, our physical intimacy, our friends, our family, or work, apart from how God intended, becomes an act of idolatry and abuse that defiles not only ourselves, but all the gifts that we abuse. And this, of course, is the consequence of covetousness and idolatry. And what the Lord explains through this curse of the ground to Adam is, your idolatry and covetousness has defiled the earth. It has separated it from my word. It has made it not good. I will have no part of it from now on. The ground and the earth and the world from now on will be cut off from the blessing of God's word. And the result, brothers and sisters, you can read in the rest of 17 through 18. What was once a holy and blessed land that was a joy and delight and a pleasure to eat from, now will be a pain to eat from. In pain you shall eat of it. And the Hebrew word for pain, maybe a closer translation, is toil. The idea of suffering, sorrow, anxiety, struggle, painful labor. The same word that is used of childbirth. Ladies, the curse for the first woman is toil or pain in childbirth. But for the first man, it's pain in eating for the entirety of his life, all the days of your life. Showing that the life and world he lives in now is cut off from the blessing of God's word. Adam's world and his work and his life now are going to be about painful and fruitless labor. And in verse 18, what was once by the work of God's word, a land that freely brought forth fruit trees and plants bearing seed that made eating and living a joy and free of worry, now that it's cut off from God's word, is going to bring forth hostile thorns and thistles that will cut and pierce. And now Adam will eat plants that he must toil to cultivate. Work now in a cursed world is no longer about worship or work for God. It's about working for yourself. It's about survival. It's about what Richard Dawkins said, staving off death. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Now you folks know I like to bake bread. I'm on that COVID-19 baking bread phenomenon. But if you've ever baked bread, or if you've ever talked to the spouse of someone who bakes bread, you know that it's a very different world from picking cherries. 
And really, when it starts, it comes from cultivating those seeds. And it's about grinding. And in the ancient Near East, bread involved having those millstones that were heavy. And the animals that you would get, or Samson, you know, of of people who were being punished, to push those millstones around, to grind up that wheat or that barley or that cultivated grain. And then the process of baking and doing the bread, of having the hot fire and the dough and the yeast and pounding and kneading. Okay? It's a grind, literally. Okay? And when the Lord says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust and to dust you shall return. The Lord God's justice for Adam is giving Adam what he always wanted. And brothers and sisters, for all of us, that will always be the Lord God's justice. If you want a marriage separated from the Word of God, I will give it to you. If you want a family separated from the Word of God, I will give it to you. If you want a work or job or career or educated education separated from the Word of God, I will give it to you. And you will see that without the Word of God that gives truth and grace, that gives life and love, that is kind and gentle and gracious, you will live in a cursed world and work that is a grind where you are fighting against thorns and thistles just to put food in your mouth. A life, a work, and a world that is separated from God's Word, that is characterized by pain and suffering and death and futility. And that shows us in the end that apart from the work of God's Word, everything is just dirt. And as you go through the Psalms and you go through the Proverbs and you go through Job and you go through Ecclesiastes, all the wisdom literature... They go over this and they cite this repeatedly over and over again. And they do it within the context of people wrestling with, well, if that's true, God, why do the wicked get rich? Why do they have such a great time? Why do they have the mansions and the models and the boats? It doesn't seem to apply for them. But brothers, go and read Ecclesiastes and read the Proverbs. Read 1 Peter and James which talk about how the rich men are like flowers or grass in the field. When the sun comes and they scorch, suddenly they vanish. And the only thing that lasts forever is the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, in our home, there are two hobbies that have kept our kids occupied during COVID. You may know, you may have been signed up to the Magic Club or the Video Game Club. They tend to be the two occupations that provide some distraction, the Magic Club and the Video Game Club. I try and remind my boys that those are entertainments and they're okay as diversions. But they need to be kept in their place. Why? Because at the end of the day, magic is just an illusion. And video games are just a distraction. 
And if we get too caught up in it and start to think that they are real, we end up living a lie. And when you go to Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Psalms, what they demonstrate and show is the lives of the rich and famous ultimately is a lie and an illusion and a magic trick. To demonstrate to you all that there is life, when in actual fact all there is is death. And over time, the Lord reveals that to be true and He shows where it goes and demonstrates and you just have to wait in God's timing. And the only reason God doesn't bring the hammer down right away, First Peter tells us, or Second Peter, is that the Lord is giving us time to repent. It's a magic trick, brothers and sisters. It's a video game. And it comes to an end and people discover that they were living a lie. Guess what? Bill Gates just got a divorce. Maybe you heard too. For all his billions, for everything that he has, and he's far more respectable than most, it was not able to save his marriage. He's just like any other Joe in Silicon Valley, brothers and sisters. Did work have something to do with that? I don't know. This brings us to our final point for this morning. Could I have my, thank you, you're one step ahead of me. Christ redeems and saves not only our lives, but also our work. Christ redeems and saves not only our lives, but also our work. And this is really, brothers and sisters, the good news. When you go through the Old Testament, you see that God does not leave us to ourselves. That's why the world is not as bad as it could be. There's something called common grace. And God is a gracious and good Lord. And even for the wicked, He does not allow their lives in this world to be as bad as it could be. He gives us time to repent. And in Scripture, God's plan of salvation from sin and idolatry comes with the gift of His Word. And to Abraham and to Moses and Israel, he offers salvation by giving them his word. His word returns into their lives. And with his word comes the blessing of his word. And to them, he gives a blessing. He gives them a job. And he gives them a new identity and a new people. And guess what? He gives them a promised land. They're moving back in the direction of Eden. When Moses is confronted by the burning bush, the Lord tells him to take his shoes off because you are standing on or getting close to what? Holy ground. In other words, all the rest of the ground where you travel, including you, Moses, you've defiled, it's not holy. But where God dwells, it is holy. It's set apart. And it is blessed by His presence and the presence of His Word. With God's word comes the promise of a people, a land of blessing where they are to be a blessing to others. And living in a land flowing with milk and honey where their work is to do the word of God. Their work is ultimately to be a blessing to the world, to give life and love and lordship, to be a bright light or a lighthouse to the world. This is the nation of Israel. 
And guess what? They say, we don't want that. We want the big houses. We want the big mansions. We want all those great things that all those nations around us have. We want to be like them. We don't want to work a six-day week. We want to work a seven-day week. We want to work from home. We want to telecommute. And so God takes away the land, and he exiles them and throws them out of the promised land, and then he brings the Romans in, and then their work is no longer an act of worship, brothers and sisters. It's not, no longer a joy and delight. They're no longer working to give because they're continually working to take. Well, the Lord brings, after the Egyptians, he brings the Romans in. But then God sends his son, Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, Jesus comes as the son of what? A carpenter. Yes, a king, but a blue-collar worker. And in Philippians 2, 6-7, through 7, the Apostle Paul says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, a doulos, the lowest of the low, the worst work, the most humiliating position. And as you read the Gospels, brothers and sisters, you see that Jesus was no stranger to hard work. Somehow when men come into the ministry, they think, well, it's easy time. I don't have to work the way I used to work in my old job. Not so with Jesus. He worked harder than anyone. And as you read his Gospels and you read his parables and you read his sermons, you're going to see that the New Testament says a lot about work. And Jesus has a lot to say about work. And Jesus exemplifies. Jesus works to the point of hunger and exhaustion. Jesus is willing to do the dirty work that nobody else will do, including washing his disciples' feet. But the difference, unlike Adam, and maybe unlike us, is Jesus does it joyfully. Why does he do it joyfully, brothers, even though it's hard, difficult, ugly, menial, apparently mindless work? He's not working for himself, brothers and sisters. He's working out of love for the Father and out of love for you and I. It is a heart of love that is working to give rather than taking. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 4. And we will tie up with this, sort of. John 4.34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Who's Jesus working for? He's working for the Father. Now, where does this work lead Jesus? leads to rejection, it leads to being reviled, it leads to being crucified. He gives his life away. He gives his life away so that sinners like you and I, brothers and sisters, can have a new life and a new work that belongs to him instead of the foolishness of this world. You have your Bibles, go to John 6, 27. John 6, 27. 
Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Brothers and sisters, do you believe in Him? The proof is in your work. It's not what are you working for, brothers and sisters, it's who are you working for. Do you believe in Him? Brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus saves us from our sin and our idolatry. You're either working for him or you're working really for the devil. You're working for yourself. And let me just say this. We need to repent of this, brothers and sisters. I know I sound serious this morning. I know it's Mother's Day. What do we love about our mothers? We love about them what they have given to us. And for many, not all, but for many, that giving has been selfless in many ways. And to some extent, it resembles a little bit the love of Christ at its best. But brothers and sisters, God created you for something beautiful, to be God's gift and to give his life and love and lordship. And some of you say, well, Pastor Mark, you, you know, the church pays for you. You get to do this. You get to work for God. The rest of us, I'm working for IBM or I'm working for, you know, Microsoft or I'm working for whatever. But Jesus showed, brothers and sisters, that for a believer, it is a labor of love and a work of faith where you work harder than anyone else because you're working ultimately for the one who loved you and gave his life for you. And when you believe in Jesus, that's the crux, your life, brothers and sisters, becomes a light and a joy to everyone in this world. Sinners may hate you, but the sheep will come to you and you will be able to give and like Peter in the temple... Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I'll give you. In the name of Jesus, arise. And wealth and love and life are given, brothers and sisters, that transform a world and a workplace because the difference is what's in your heart. But it begins, brothers and sisters, not with a whole plan of do this, do this, do this, witness, leave tracks. It begins, brothers and sisters, in whether or not you truly believe that Jesus is Lord and He is worthy of all your worship and He is worth leaving your sin behind to repent, including your work, to turn to Him for forgiveness and new life forever. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, You came so that we might work for you. May that be 
the joy and the reality, not only that we have, but that we give to a world that so desperately needs it. In your name we pray, amen.